Welcome to episode 225 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have as our featured guest the great American playwright Martina Mayok. She is right now working on a production of one of her pieces called Cost of Living that is going to open in June at the Manhattan Theater Club off Broadway. And we talk about that production. We talk about some themes involved, including abundance and need, about able-bodied and disabled people and actors. We also talk about other uh, pieces she's written and some she's working on for the future as well as some TV and movie uh, aspirations. And also I ask her about what if Mike Pence came to one of her shows. Great conversation with Martina Mayok. We also, that's my dinner here in the background. (laughs) We also have another essay by our associate producer, uh, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, titled University of the Night. We have an EW essay by yours truly called Republicans Are Awful. And we have a poem titled Beloved. All of this, of course, is intertwined, enmeshed within several great tunes. It's nice to have you with you. All of our troubadours and rock on tours across this great planet of ours. Let's get to it. Episode 225 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
Republicans are awful. Lally gagging, flatulent, mud smackers, wearing high priced suits, yet empty as a Grand Canyon, swift to please their masters of political ego and nasty, nasty small minds and even smaller hearts. As the orange, as an orangutan with the dye job comb over, smiles eternally, stupid, into the wall-to-wall abyss of flashbulbs and microphones, seeking acceptance, food for his hubris, so that he might fill the void he has perhaps intrinsic, perhaps because his mother or father didn't know how to love him. Perhaps he just enjoys being loathsome and stupid, incoherent and insensitive to his fellow man and woman. The house seeks to please and make deals with this absurd force of nature gone bad. His cabinet, a team of adept pricks and mediocre narcissists, coming of age in their extraordinary privilege. As we witness, either in denial or in furious despair. And in the meantime, these camouflaged creeps take away provisions for our health care, protections for our natural environment. They believe compassion should exist without comfort as only they are worthy of it. And the wealth and access of this land, they believe should be theirs, only theirs. The rest of us should champion the injustice and cruelty as the American way, and weirdly so, too many do. Republicans are awful. Express yourself, and it's hard to trust enough to undress yourself to stand exposed and naked in a world full of hatred where the sick thoughts of mankind control all the sacred. I pause, take a step back. Record all the sad bars. Fast forward towards the stars and the jetpack. My feet might fail me, my heart might ail me. The synagogues of Satan might accuse or tell me. I get something to say. Yesterday is gone, tomorrow's on the way. That name, oh. 
on that birth certificate that in the real me that in the real me the lies can't conceal me the sunrise and the moon ties and the sky is gonna reveal me my brain pours water on my tears to heal me i got something to say The message grab a hold to every ears that get whispered in The waters and the bayous of New Orleans still glistening yeah. The universe is listening, be careful what you're saying it. My grandma told me every bed and it gonna make healing The church you go to pray in it The work is on the outside Stirring out the windows It's for the love songs And house flies I got something to Martina Mayok, is that you? <laughs> it is. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh no, no. This this is normal stuff. It's a pleasure to have you yeah. on Troubadours and Rock On Tours again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And sorry for the technical difficulties. Were you playing the like da na 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 da da na da song like what we were waiting for? Yeah, yeah. That's the my go to yeah, music. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you know? Yeah, you know, I figured. <laughs> <laughs> so how's everything going? We talked to you about a year ago. Yeah. And uh, It's good, it's good. Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, you're working on a, a production now, and I want to give people some background before we get into our conversation. Uh, we're talking to one of the premier playwrights in New York City, thus the nation, thus I would oh. venture to say the world, <laughs> really. Um and I'll take that. <laughs> you should. You deserve it. Uh, a very young artist. But, I'll take that, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but seasoned, nonetheless. Um, many, many awards, much experience in the field of theater. So I'm going to read a couple things. Uh, there's so much here. But let's see. Where shall I start? Um, her plays have been performed and developed at the O'Neill Theater Center. Steppenwolf Theatre Company, Williamstown Theatre Festival, Manhattan Theatre Club, Actors Theatre of Louisville, 
Rattlestick Playwrights Theater, Woman's Project Theater, Ensemble Studio Theater, Roundhouse Theater, uh, and the list. I mean, it just goes on. The Labyrinth Theater Company, John F. Kennedy Center, Dorset Theater Festival, and there's a bunch of awards as well. Um, the Charles MacArthur Award for Outstanding Original New Player Musical, a.k.a. the Helen Hayes Awards. The, that one stands out to me, but, I mean, there's so many uh, very impressive awards. And as I mentioned, I mean, the list goes on. You can go online and just do a, a Google, and you'll <laughs> see. Very impressive. And also well, just to... Thanks for some nice morning uh, compliments. <laughs> it, it helps with the rest of the day, I suppose. <laughs> yes. So uh, Cost of Living is the latest piece. Last year, you uh, debuted it at uh, the Williamstown Theater Festival. Mm -hmm. And that's where you met my colleague, uh, Dr. Yeah. Michael Pavise, and that's how we got you on the show. Yeah. And uh, now you're going to be uh, putting it, staging it on, uh, up on the stage of the Manhattan, Manhattan Theater Club, which is mm -hmm. off-Broadway. And that's happening uh, May 16th, preview start, and then opening night, June mm -hmm. 7th, right? Right, yeah. So... Tell us how the rehearsals and such are going for cost of living. Yeah, it's great. It's it's fun. It's it, it's strange to work on a play with so much time in the in the middle because you start uh, you start to work on other shows, you start to write other plays, and then it's like having to switch gears to go to go back to to a different story from a different part of your life too, which uh, which is which is interesting because you were coming at it with a different lens. So, so um, the first production feels raw because you're so used to might be going through some of the things that that um, you were dealing with when you were writing it, and then and then now there's this interesting kind of perspective on it, and so I think that makes it uh, you can get to, you can access it in a kind of more a more universal way and and write and rewrite it towards that. So things that I might not have caught um or like we're being able to refine that i can do now with a little bit of perspective and the cast is great and we're having a fun time and it's good yeah we're having a lot of fun i yeah i bet you there is a lot of fun going and you have some talented folks involved you have uh the ob award winner joe bonnie yeah she's great directing mm -hmm. yeah is that fun yeah, she and she did the the first one too. So it's it's been nice to get to get back to work with her. Yeah. And uh, you're are you? I, I know there are several themes. I don't know how much you want to share with our listeners, but I know one thing that you focus on is a uh -huh. contrast between abundance and need. What what yeah. is what do you mean by that? Yeah, there, well, I started writing the play. Um, when I, I had just moved to New York and I, that was a year where I had 13 apartments and, and bed bugs. And 13 apartments the, in one year? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Not, not fun. We moved to, my husband and I got married in like a backyard in, in the woods and, uh, you know, my mom made my dress and like we made a bunch of Polish food and that was like, welcome to our wedding. Uh, cause neither of us come from money, which, you know, that's just, it's just what it is. Uh, and we moved to New York. I think we had like $2,000 between the two of us. And we didn't have enough to have a, to, to, to have a security deposit or anything, really. We had like no furniture. 
Uh, we just finished grad school, and um, so we so we all, all we could do was sublet. Our lease was up in New Haven when we went to grad school, and then we uh, decided to move to the closest major city, <laughs> close to Connecticut, which is New York. And uh, we 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 couldn't afford like a brokerage for your security deposit, so we just sublet uh, and thought like, let's well, if we work a lot in New York, certainly won't be able to save some money, which is not necessarily true. Uh, and our, we thought that like within two months we'd have enough money, and we didn't, so we had to sublet again. And in that sublet, we got bed bugs. The owners oh, actually no. they knew they had. It was terrible. Like I had PTSD from every time I talk about it, I start to like get itchy. It's really gross. Now I'm now I'm like the cleanest person in New York City because I have like disinfected my everything. Well, I have to. Well, no, but I, I can make you feel better. My I have a bunch of kids and. Uh, this winter, we had lice go through the house from school. Oh man, that was oh, no. horrifying! Horrifying. Uh, took four. It took yeah, about four months. But yeah, I, I, I feel, oh, I feel it. Yeah, it just becomes like yeah, you know, that's like that's like all you're dealing with. I mean, we, uh, we had lost all of our stuff. Um, the, the owners actually they knew that they had them, which was just awful. They knew that they had them. They left. Uh, and um, they they didn't want to return our money. I, I ended up having to ask one of my friends who was an actor, but then he went to law school. Uh, I was like, he, but he didn't pass the bar. I was like, can you just pretend to be a lawyer and call them and just scare them into giving us back our money? And it worked. And so they gave us at least give us back our money. But like we lost so much of our belongings and time and just the money and all that stuff. So so it was like lots of lots of problems upon problems that had to do with the fact of us not having money. Uh, and, and you know, we never quite got back on our feet. And so during that year, which is you know, my first year in New York, I, I wasn't able to really write many plays. I didn't have much time to devote to that. It was like survival. But I wrote little things here and there, and they had to do with, you know, economic difficulties and things like that. And um, it's always, like, been part of my life, but not, uh, yeah, it was just coming back after grad school. Um, and you were so, at Yale studying uh, yeah. theater. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, like, totally funded. I wasn't going <laughs> to, like, that was also another thing is I couldn't go to school without fellowships or scholarships and things like that. So part of going to, you know, school of drama was they had health insurance. <laughs> they had health insurance and gave you a stipend. So I was like, I'll go there. Sounds great. Uh, so so um, what that during that year, uh, well, an already long story, trying to make it short. During that long year, I was part of a theater, um, a writing group. I just joined it so that I could make sure that I had some kind of connection to this world, even though I was, you know, dealing with all this other stuff. And uh, they did this. They did a ten-minute play festival. As it was, well, the focus of it was jobs. That was the scene that they wanted me to write a short, like a ten-minute play about. Uh, so I saw, and I had just lost my job. <laughs> I was cocktail waitressing at the time, and I was like, "What am I gonna? What am I gonna write about? Do I write about being unemployed?" And somebody asked me, "Well, what's your most memorable job?" And I started writing about when I had um, when I worked as a caregiver for a man with cerebral palsy when I was still in Chicago, and he uh, and so then the story became about a person of a lower class meeting a person with the, of a higher class, but that their differences uh, in addition to the money they come from is their ability. One is able-bodied and one is and the other is disabled, and so so it kind of started from there. And I realized that during that 
that year, every sort of short play or short piece I was working on, because I couldn't really focus on a larger piece, every short piece had to do with um, the kind of have and have-nots and um, uh, grief and uh, grief for your for your own dreams, grief for people. Uh, and I realized some of those short plays were talking to each other, and so then I, I put them together for a cost of living. It's, I swear it's funnier than I'm making it sound. No, it's but it's compelling. Kind of it's it compelling. <laughs> I, and you're, you have a, another work, I think, is what got you the Charles MacArthur Award, right? Oh, no, that's actually, that's, that's Ironbound. That was right, exactly. That, um, that's the other one yes, I'm thinking yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that has, that's um, the story of, uh, um, largely based on my mom, a, a story of a Polish immigrant who's dealing with, yeah. But it's true, that it, is a, it is a kind of have, have not, it's just that all of the people in that one, um, there's no, uh, it's all the people that are of a lower class instead of comparing them. So it's about abundance and need, that one, more so, or, mm-hmm. as well as uh, the yeah. cost of living. Cost of living also has the disabled and able-bodied persons as a, as, as a theme. And, mm-hmm. and um, the actors that mm-hmm. are playing the disabled uh, characters, are they, are they sh- is it hard for them? Are they disabled uh, actors? They are, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a really important thing for me uh, was to have disabled actors in the role. It's one of the first things I put into the script um, because for so long people have uh, decided to not go into that community because there are artists in that community. There are actors, there are writers, you know, that that um, are eager to be seen and to tell their stories. And um, and I've, I I knew a lot of them when I was in Chicago, and then when I moved to New York too, I. Um, I met a lot of them who were telling me the frustrations of uh, having able-bodied people be cast in roles that they they felt that they weren't giving a ch- given a chance to portray, even though it's their experience. So, so yeah, we have a, a Greg Mascala has cerebral palsy and he's playing a character with CP, and then um, uh, Katie Sullivan is playing uh, a character who is quadriplegic. Um, she is actually. She was uh, born with, there's a, there's a very long name that I don't remember uh, for what this condition is, but she was born without knees and lower legs, uh, or legs. And um, uh, so she, she, and she's also a Paralympian. <laughs> she oh. set a world record for, for, long, for I think, sprints. Um, and, oh. uh, yeah, so, but she's, and, but she, and her, her husband, I think, is quadriplegic. So she... Uh, was born disabled and uh, is like part of that community, but then she's able to pull from the experience with her husband, specifically for uh, being quadriplegic. And um, when when you found these folks, had they had mm-hmm. much uh, experience uh, with this sort of uh, play, a play written for, uh, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. certain aspects of their real experience? Or is they had a, yeah. They, all of them were making their own work because it wasn't available to them. They uh, there weren't uh, there either weren't enough roles to sustain a career in that way um, for the theater, I think, or people just weren't going to them. I mean, you you know, there was the there was the controversy with that movie, Me Before You, that had uh, it cast an able-bodied man in the role of uh, I think he's also quadriplegic in that in that in that um, film. And their rationale was, well, there's one scene where he's walking, where we right. see him in the past, and right. so therefore they needed it. And it's like, well, it's not really, it was an economic thing. I mean, it was like, let's get a star 
to right. you know play play this role and like talking to to Greg and Katie, they, you know, they, they joke that like, well, he's going to get an award if he plays somebody who's disabled. Like this is just, you know, it's seen as like this transformative thing to play somebody with a disability, but it actually is, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty offensive to not even consider going into that community where they, the artists exist and have been shut out from a certain level of, um, uh, just a certain level, like they'll they'll make more money for me before you than they will doing a, doing a, a small show off Broadway, off 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 Broadway that they've written that you know maybe five people will see. Right, exactly. So it, yeah, it isn't. Uh, in many ways, it's questionable to go that route, but nothing new, right? Folks in yeah, certain yeah. minority communities are are often portrayed by people who right. aren't from those communities. Uh, whether right, it be right, gays right. and uh, you know LBGTQ right. folks, uh, you know, uh, and, and the list right. goes on and on and on. But right. your show, you're being you're being sensitive to that because you believe it's important. It's an ethical decision, I, I presume. And plus, these folks are very talented, despite all yeah. the reasons why you would choose them anyway. <clears throat> they're great. Yeah, yeah, they're great. Yeah. Now, when you when you're there uh, working on this production, you kind of alluded to this earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's been some time since you initially wrote it. And mm-hmm. and now you have some uh, perspective that you didn't have back then. Do, has tell us about um, any f- unforeseen artistic developments in the production you wouldn't mind, you know, uh, revealing. Yeah, yeah. There was there was uh, um, well, so the process of waiting this time was was very fast. Tech tech lasted about twenty hours, and usually it's a, a week long process. Um, it just that's the sort of nature of that of how time works at Williamstown and we had two previews whereas like at Manhattan Theater Club we'll have two and a half three which is kind of more standard so a lot of things that I saw once the play was once all the moving parts came together the set and lights and everything like that and then we put the last part and the most important part is the audience and their responses I didn't get a chance to really address the things I would have liked to Put in because we didn't have much time to put them in before it was official opening, and they had to go for they they started their run, and so certain things uh, that changed in this one, like the story is still the same. I've just I've been trying to clarify certain things that I think were uh, confusing or not as just not as clear, like what specifically these particularly with these with the disabilities, what they entail, like um, people. So Katie, because she's she was born without legs. Um, and they see, and, and the audience sees her in a wheelchair, and so they just think she's an amputee, as opposed to thinking that she, understand that she's quadriplegic and has no no movement in her arms or her legs and anything below below the neck. And so I've been putting in here and there, like uh, letting the audience know exactly what she's dealing with. Um, and uh, similar similarly for for Greg's character. So that's that's one kind of basic thing that I've that I've put in. And I got, and a larger one is. Um, uh, we're clarifying time too because it plays with it plays with time, and then the 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 big note I got throughout was um, which is interesting because it's the uh, the thing that I, I the the play emerged from this specific experience, and yet it's the the one that felt least clear to an audience, which was how is somebody who is college educated. Uh, and able-bodied in America, how do they, this is kind of a spoiler, but how do they end up homeless and living in a car? That just felt, the people had such a hard time uh, swallowing that, that that is a a reality for a lot of people. 
and so I had to kind of put in little, you know, small things, small steps to get to clue an audience into how that can incrementally happen, how you can get so uh, get to such a like a state of economic despair when you're educated and able-bodied and, and living in America. So that was a big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and this and this was something that you you added in after the the initial run to a certain extent. No, it, it was in, it was in there. It's just that I think um, people sort of came out of nowhere, which I thought. Uh, which I didn't have a problem with because I felt like that is what sort of happens. It's like there's one or two things happen to you and then you were like, oh, here I am. This is this, this is the position that I'm in. Um, but that didn't, that wasn't, that isn't the experience of a lot of the people that come to the theater. <laughs> so, you, so I was like, yeah. <laughs> so how'd you... So I just kind of... Uh-huh. Now go ahead. I, I think you're going there. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, so how did, how did I um, put that in? I... Um, I put in little clues about uh, we don't see what's going. All of the scenes happen with the with these with those two with the two people kind of these two hander scenes with um, uh, one couple and the other couple, and so we don't see what their lives are like when they're not together. And so I was just bringing in certain language for that character to say when she would come in and and um, go into work that indicated that there were things going on. There were certain things that were going on that she just chose not to share, but that there was a, but there was something. And so it, it kind of just tips the audience off to, uh, to, to kind of to be mindful and watch that there's, that there's something going on that she's just not willing to share and that we'll probably find out about it later. So it didn't come as, as, as much of a shock because I've had, until then I had her playing as though everything is fine. <laughs> I think she was playing too convincingly that everything is fine. So there's a, a few cracks. There's a few more cracks uh, on the road to to the reveal. A little foreshadowing, more so for mm-hmm, people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, now, how about your work? I'm thinking about your your description. I'm enjoying it. Do you, how about your work being translated into another uh, medium? You know, into TV and film. Do you, uh-huh. Is that happening? Do you hope that'll happen? Yeah, I'm actually trying to. Uh, um, I'm actually trying to make cost of living into a into a film. I'm working on that right now. I figured that was a uh, while I, while my head is in the, the the space of this play to to work on the film version, um, which is actually that's that one's that one's fun and and easy because it gets it lets me get into. Um, it just kind of it, the aspect of close ups is great. I mean, particularly with with two two people on stage like the. Uh, I get to I get to look look closer into what that experience is, particularly with caregiving bodies and and things like that for um, uh, for for this play. I was uh, I was at a talkback with um, uh, Denzel Washington was doing a talkback of Fences uh, when he when he filmed the movie, and he was saying that one of the best things for him was actually getting to show Pittsburgh because it was for you know we see. Uh, we've all seen August Wilson plays, and but not all of us have been to Pittsburgh, and so it was just so great to actually see it in the film. These things that we don't, we don't, the, the feeling mm-hmm. of Pittsburgh is brought into those plays, but we don't get to see mm-hmm. it. And so, um, uh, so, so that's something similar too, is being able to see what the what the environment of like that part of New Jersey is. Um, and uh, for TV, I'm there's I have a play called Queens uh, that's going to be going up next year, uh, also in New York. Uh, and I'm trying to make that into a series uh, because it's a 
that that show is right now it's three hours long and I could keep going. <laughs> so so TV TV's like, We love this. Keep please keep going, give us more episodes and so I'm, I'm working on that. Some less less so because of just being in rehearsal. But that's on the on the back burner. So you, you have uh, you have a station that wants to to air it. You have uh, actors and directors and such uh, writers. So that, no, it's I mean it's so, that's it's so much slower for for TV. This is just that that one is that one is like there's networks that are interested and and then we would form a pitch and all this sort of stuff. So it's right. like so it's really really nascent and I haven't finished. Um, uh, the pitch and all that sort of stuff. So, so. How about the film, but that's, that's on there. Yeah, oh, but the film, oh, but the film. Yeah, that's also that's also uh, new. You know, I've never I've never worked in. I've did a little bit of TV, but I didn't work in. I haven't worked in film, and so it's like learning a new language. Like, how does this? How does this work? I, I know how this works for for plays. I know what the process is for plays, and so I'm kind of. Yeah, I'm like a baby steps into into all the worlds, so and I'm just gonna write write it and see see sort of uh, what happens. And do you think your your uh, connections and your reputation from theater will help you get a couple doors open and get some attention at least to hear your pitch? Oh, I hope. So. I mean, I hope so. So, so uh, it's actually kind of uh, easier to get into the door than I thought. <laughs> once you once you've had a play in New York, I think that people are. It's, I mean, I told been told that people are looking for playwrights specifically for TV. I've um, I've been I've worked on some TV and been offered certain other ones that I couldn't do because of scheduling and um, they're they're looking they're looking for playwrights in, in the world of TV. Excellent, good, Cong- yeah. you know, good luck with that. And uh, oh, thank you. I want to ask you a couple of more questions. Again, folks, we're talking to Martina Mayok, and uh, she is one of the premier playwrights in our nation. Uh, talking to her in New York City, where she is working on a production of Cost of Living. It'll be previewing starting May 16th, and then opening night is June 7th at the Manhattan Theater Club, right off Broadway. Now, why should people come to see this production, Cost of Living? I mean, there are some heavy issues going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, yeah, for sure, there, there's heavy issues, but I don't, um, I'm not... Uh, I'm in the business of subverting, I think, what our expectations of those kinds of stories are, are supposed to be. Uh, I, it, so, so, for example, there, there's a major trope um, about disabled narratives. Uh, there's, there's, there's two like, kinds of disabled stories that are kind of popular. One is the like, inspirational, I can, I can do anything story. That's the, that's the um, oh, what, is, what is the name of the... Uh, Stephen Hawking movie, it's, but there's there's that like against the against all odds story, yes, uh, which is which is true, but it's definitely it can get it can get kind of syrupy and sentimental definitely. and make definitely. everybody into you know uh, like just overly noble saints, and then the other one is the the dying with dignity narrative, which is uh, you know being disabled is oh so terribly horrible, how could you possibly live? In a body, in a disabled body, I certainly the the only option must be to to kill yeah. yourself, which is that happens absolutely, and like they, you know, you, people make their choices about what they want to do with their lives. But I know so many people in life for whom that is not true, that are that are living full lives within disabled bodies, and who would never think to do that. That's not that's just not how they see the world, and so I'm trying to 
bring in other narratives that haven't been that that are lacking. And so that I knew I knew from the get like that would not be in there. Nobody was going to commit suicide. Um, and, uh, there were going to be characters who feel un- uncomfortable around, uh, disability who, where, where we'd poke fun at that. And, um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of jokes, there's a lot of humor because it, I just feel like that is the honest experience of, 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 of that. I, I, um, every, I was talking to Greg, um, who's the actor who has through a palsy. And he feels like he has to be the first person to crack a joke. He's always telling me he has to be the first person to crack a joke because people don't know how to talk to him when mm-hmm. they first meet him. And so he has to be the one that makes him comfortable. And so I, I put that in, into, the, into the narrative too. So, so I'm hoping it's, it's something that uh, is a surprising story. It's something that people don't expect to see on stage when, when you hear that this is a play about people with disabilities. Uh, I hope it's going to be fun and funny, and I think there's some some um, some beautiful moments that we're staging, and there's people get called out, and it's trying to make it as honest as possible and and funny. So yeah, uh, that was. I hope, a, they, I hope they come. That was great. That was. It sounds. It, it sounds like a great show to go. And I mean, we have to be. Uh, let's just be logical. If it's at the yeah. Manhattan Theater Club. They're not opening their doors to you because you're uh, a charming person. It's because <laughs> the production has has some substance. It, it's a good piece. That's why it's at this theater. So you know, right, right there, is, oh, it, it speaks you. volumes. Congratulations, break a leg. Thank you. I, I, <laughs> and this this is a strange question, perhaps for you. And I'm coming at you without you. You have no clue that I'm going to ask you this, and maybe you okay. won't want to answer it. But I oh, think no. you might. I think you might. I like building it up here. I'm, here's, here's my chance at drama. Um, <laughs> now, my social security number is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, here's the question, Martina. How would you respond if Vice President Mike Pence came to oh, a production of Cost of Living? Wow. <laughs> Wow. Uh, man, I feel like what Hamilton did was the best they could have done. To be honest, you know, like I am, I saw some people who were so, so against what, what that was because they, you know, felt similarly to Mr. to Mr. Twitter, who said that uh, <laughs> to President Twitter, who said that uh, you know, like they should be ashamed of themselves that the theater is a safe space or whatever. I'm like, I strongly disagree. <laughs> we're having a conversation, and the best way for us to have a conversation is for me to actually show you people living through an experience. Uh, I could have written you an email, truly, but it wouldn't have been as effective as, as if you were watching bodies on stage telling you their experience. Uh, so I think I probably would have just like taken a taken a page from the book of Hamilton and done the same done the same thing, or like asked him to come and get a drink with me and all of us, you know, and see see what that is. I think so. Number one way of disarming people is like is like humor in the theater, and number two is the bar. So hopefully, a combination of the both. Excellent. Good yeah. answer. And Good I've, got, I've got the next play is about LGBTQ issues too, so I can be like, I just throw in that one too. <laughs> oh, your next play is, is focusing on the, those issues. The the next next one after after Queens, yeah, it's a play called Sanctuary City. Uh, yeah, that uh, that has to. It's a it's um, uh, a, it also is that one is taken from life too. It's when I almost um, when I became naturalized because I was uh, I'm an immigrant to the country. And when I became naturalized, uh, I had a lot of friends. Uh, who had a lot of friends who were immigrants like me, and one of my closest friends was undocumented, and um, he was not able to uh, 
uh, applied to go to college because he wouldn't have gotten financial aid. And so it's the story of when we almost got married for citizenship. He's also he's also gay, and was not uh, so at that time, 2004. He was not able to get married in order to as an, as a wrap towards citizenship. He was very over yet yeah, very young too, so he was a dreamer, uh, and uh, his. Uh, so he basically was, I think he was here in the country at that point for over half his life. He, this was when we were 18. And uh, so we almost got, um, we almost got married so that he could stay in the country and go to college uh, and become a citizen. And it's sort of the, the breakup of our friendship because of that process going through that. Wow. So that definitely, that's going to inspire the sanctuary city work is a bit that, that experience. That's the yeah, that so that I I wrote that play in three days. Great. <laughs> I'm like a last month, and so that's that's the new one that I have to look at. But that's what that is. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be like, Mister Pence. <laughs> Let's talk. Let's be friends. Yes. Let's be friends. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I look forward to uh, the the this production. Hopefully, I can get out and see it for uh, the preview. I would or love the, that, and then we can go drinking. Ah, oh, that would be fun. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it seems you have a bunch of stuff in the queue I'm also looking forward to. And hopefully you'll come back on Troubadours and Rock On Tours and we could talk a bit I would more. love it. I would love it. Well, thank you for taking time out of rehearsals. Are you going back this afternoon? Or are you, are you I'm going to... back right now, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm so, I'm so uh, honored to have you on the program, and uh, it's exciting to talk to you. You're such a cool person. Thank you so much. You're a cool person. Thank you for having me. I always love coming on here. This is great. Beautiful. Have a wonderful yeah. Saturday. Talk Thank with you, you soon. Thank you. You too. Bye. How long have you been hanging around? Your eyes fit to the cement ground. Your heart is warm, your hands are cold. You know the truth, but the story gets old. You stood on the corner for a long time People passing by gave you nickels and dimes They think you're one of the nameless Cause you got no record And you ain't famous Oh, Bill, I know how you're feeling Your heart's on fire and your head is reeling But with the spirit to guide you and a friend beside you You know you'll win if you're only willing The sun's so hot and my heart is thumping Let me buy you a beer or something You've been traveling a hard road Sit down, Bill Lighten your load If you need a friend Give me a call I got your picture on my wall From one compadre to another I love you, Bill As I would my brother Oh, Bill I know how you're feeling Your heart's on fire and Your head is reeling Guide you and a friend beside you, you know you'll win if you're only willing. Oh, Bill, I know how you're feeling. Your heart's on fire and your head is reeling. But with the spirit to guide you and a friend beside you, you know you'll win if you're only willing. 
the University of the Night. My Teresa worked for years on an assembly line at a correspondence school. She didn't sit in a machine, sewing hats or dresses or undergarments, like other factory ladies in our town. She didn't sling hash at a diner or a cafeteria, like my Aunt Jewel. She didn't man a counter at a downtown department store, like my mother. She boxed booklets that were mailed to eager students all over the country, all over the world, who scratched away at the American dream on kitchen tables, basement workbenches, and tiny bedroom desks. Our town is the birthplace of the correspondence school, but the founder wasn't a native. He was a newspaper man who came from another coal town with the deceptively romantic-sounding name of Shenandoah. Originally, in the late 19th century, he used his method to teach mine safety. He soon expanded his curriculum to not just save miners' lives and limbs, but to help them move up, as foremen say, and then out of the mines altogether, to jobs that wouldn't blacken their lungs and send them to an early grave. Picture these first students, home from the mine at night, attempting to study, surrounded by long-suffering wives and four or five noisy children. The only thing the miner wanted was a drink, but he had to puzzle over math or grammar. The founder's ideas caught on, and he and his successors created the world's schoolhouse, as they branded themselves. Not just for miners, but students everywhere, or the blue-collar students who weren't successful in traditional classrooms and who wanted to be their own teachers, with occasional support from the starchy and stalwart faculty at the school headquarters. On their own, they could learn almost every subject under the sun, drafting and railroad car maintenance, and radio, TV, VCR, and computer repair, the courses changing with the times. You learn by reading. How basic. You go to the mailbox, and there are your textbooks. You read. You mail in your exams. You graduate. You're on your way to a new career, a new life, a new you. As the school flourished, the founder expanded his offerings, and, an architecture aficionado, he built handsome structures around town, some of which still stand. The original school headquarters, an unlikely Gothic building on a downtown thoroughfare, now houses senior citizens long past caring about careers. The imposing structure that once served as the school's domestic institute, created in the 1930s to teach ladies, young and old, the homemaking arts, is now a Jesuit prep school. Across the street, where the printing plant once cranked out thousands of textbooks, golden boys and girls from the school play soccer. Our correspondence school has its famous, and now mostly forgotten, alumni. Arthur Godfrey, for example. You'd have to be fairly old, 
perhaps sitting in a chair in that gothic former schoolhouse, gazing at the past through rooming eyes, to know Arthur Godfrey, a ukulele-strumming radio and TV personality who hosted a talent show, the American Idol of the mid-20th century, a seemingly benign and folksy fellow with a dictatorial streak. He was a big name in his day and promoted the careers of equally forgotten entertainers, like Julius LaRosa, a crooner Godfrey famously fired on air and whose career subsequently floundered for years. Walter Chrysler, founder of the car company, was also a graduate, as well as Eddie Rickenbacker, World War I flying ace. My favorite student is even more obscure. In one of his New Yorker profiles, Joseph Mitchell interviewed Lady Olga, a bearded lady who eked out a living in a sideshow. She dreamt of leaving her seedy side of show business, and so she studied stenography with an old correspondence course she bought in a second-hand bookstore in Chicago. There she sits, stroking her beard, poring over her booklets, dreaming of becoming a stenographer, Mitchell says, the way some women dream of Hollywood. More famous than the alumni were the ads in the backs of magazines, the pulps like men and true and adventure, the ladies' mags like Good Housekeeping and McCall's and Ladies' Home Journal, the hobbyist mags, the comics. Wherever there were readers, there were potential students. You picked your subject off the current list of courses, mailed in your coupon, and you were on your way to fulfilling your aspirations, to respect, money, a happy life. There were the matchbooks with ads, back in the day when everyone smoked, so everyone needed matchbooks. You reached for a Pall Mall, closed the cover before striking, and imagined yourself a motorcycle repairman. Then there were the ubiquitous and much-mocked television commercials, which lured unemployed insomniacs late at night or unlucky layabouts watching soap operas or game shows during the day. The magazine ad, cited as a classic by professional persuaders, was titled The University of the Night. In it, young Abraham Lincoln is depicted lying down reading a book. Here's one of our country's most revered autodidacts, Honest Abe, and you. If you apply yourself, you could become, if not president, then perhaps a dental technician. Pick up that booklet, carefully packaged by my Aunt Teresa, and read. been loving you a long time Down all the years, down all the days And I've cried for all your troubles Smile at your funny little ways 
We watched our friends grow up together And we saw them as they fell Some of them fell into heaven Some of them fell into hell I took shelter from a shower And I stepped into your arms On a rainy night in Soho The wind was whistling all its charms I sang you all my sorrows All your joys Whatever happened To that old song To all those little Girls and boys By my bed Covered in a cloak of silence I'd hear you talking in my head I'm not singing for the future I'm not dreaming of the past Talking of the first times I never think about the last Now the song is nearly over We may never find out what it means Still there's a lot of hope before me
Beloved, from sweet September moon to the prospect of a nap under the spruce late morning in early June, as the days expand and expire as we are apt to see, the beloved traverse our custom designed inconsistency, just so we might feel alive and in control as we strive back from the nap into the thick of things. She was a level-headed dancer on the road to alcohol And I was just a soldier on the way to Montreal Well, she pressed her chest against me about the time the jukebox broke Yeah, she gave me a peck on the back of the neck And these are the words she spoke Blow up your TV Throw away your paper Go to the country Build you a home Plant a little garden Eat a lot of peaches Try and find Jesus On your own She danced around the barroom And she did the hoochie-coo Yeah, she sang her song all night long Telling me what to do Blow up your TV Throw away your paper Go to the country Build you a home Plant a little garden Eat a lot of peaches Well, she looked me in the face I said, you must know the answer She said, no, but I'll give it a try And to this very day we've been living our way Here is the reason why We blew up our TV Through our paper Went to the country Built us a home Had a lot of children Let them on peaches They all found Jesus On their own And there you have it, episode 225 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demur. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, one of our great contemporary American playwrights, Martina Mayok. She has a show opening up on June 7th at the Manhattan Theater Club off-Broadway with premieres or previews uh, opening up on May 16th. Check her out on the Internet. M-A-J-O-K is the way to spell her last name. Thank you, Martina, for a wonderful conversation. And break a leg with Cost of Living. 
We also like to thank our resident essayist, associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, for crafting and reading another wonderful piece. I also like to thank these musical artists. Buddy Miller, Ebass, Lucinda Williams, The Pogues, John Prine, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. And I also like to thank you and you and you, our listeners. Those of you in Sweden, in France, in Norway, in England, in Kenya, in Somalia, in Uganda, in San Francisco, in L.A., in New York, in Columbus, in Philadelphia, in Iowa. Amazing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Until next week, enjoy this week. Take care.